and welcome to the Flatlining Podcast, the podcast that brings you great healthcare news, analysis, and discussion each week. I'm Matthew Handley from Flatlining.net, and with me is the president and CEO of Fulcrum Strategies, Ron Howergan. Ron, how are you? I am good, Matt. How are you? I am doing very well, and I'm very excited that we are finally getting around to launching something we've been talking about for a couple months now. Yeah, it's amazing how, you know, a great idea has a hard time getting rolling, and I'm excited as well. Good. And I want to spend this first uh, program that we're doing talking a little bit about who we are, why we're doing this, why we're qualified to talk about this. And I guess I want to start that off with you is who who is Fulcrum Strategies and, and why are we qualified to talk about healthcare news and analysis? Yeah, great. Um, Fulcrum Strategies is a, a company that I actually started about 17 years ago. Um, and who we are and what we do is we really work with physicians across the country and helping them with their interfaces with insurance companies. Um, but the better question, the bigger question you ask is sort of, well, why should you listen to this podcast? Why are our opinions or thoughts about healthcare important or valid? And that's an incredibly important question. And I guess answering that, I would say it, you know, it's sort of a little bit like that old, you know, story we've all heard about, you know, these blind people and, and one of them is, you know, coming up to an elephant and feeling its trunk and saying it's a snake. And the next one is, you know, right. feeling the legs and saying it's a tree. And it's, mm-hmm. and the point is, it's all about perspective. And if you only have one perspective, you get a very different picture than what the whole is. Hopefully, and I think what we bring and what I bring to the table is a really unique perspective on healthcare. Um, First of all, I've been working in healthcare for 35 years now, so I've seen an enormous amount of change. But what's more important is that I, I bring very different and broad perspectives to it. Um, my educational background is that I'm an economist by training, so I look at a lot of things from an economic perspective. Healthcare being the largest segment of the U.S. economy, we're going to have to look at it from an economic perspective. Um, I've worked on the insurance payer side for about 18 years. For the last 17 years, I worked working with delivery systems and, and physicians and hospitals. So I see both the financing and the delivery of healthcare and what those issues bring to the table. As a business owner, I know what it's like to stroke a check every month to pay for health insurance. It is my second largest expense next to payroll. So I understand what it's like for businesses to continue to pay for something that's creating such a huge expense on their businesses. And then finally, uh, I'm the father of a child with autism, and much of my child's needed therapies and treatments when he was younger were not covered by insurance. They were deemed to be developmental delays. And so I understand what it's like when you have a need for health care, but it's not covered by insurance, and how people struggle with that issue of, but how do I get what I need when it's very mm-hmm. expensive? So. Hopefully, all of those things together will bring an interesting and valuable perspective to the discussion. So we're talking about perspective, and I, I think that's a great point, that the type of perspective that Fulcrum can bring to the table and that you can bring to the table and what we're doing with flatlining is that a lot of times you don't get all of that perspective when you're reading any other mainstream news site about anything related to healthcare. I'll give you an example. When we were talking about the No Surprises Act not too long ago, the first couple of quotes were from insurance company lobbies talking about how doctors just want to line their pockets. And obviously, that's not the entire picture here. And we, I think we understand that probably better than anyone representing doctors for what we do at Fulcrum. Oh, I think you're absolutely right. I, I might go as far as to say rarely 
do you get more than just one perspective in, in any sort of media approach to it? And I get it. I understand. But if you only look at it from that one perspective, if you only look at it from an insurance company looking at no surprises or vice versa, from a physician looking at it, you really miss the whole. Right. And we've got to start looking at this more from a balanced whole perspective. And one thing we've done uh, recently in the in the months that we've been doing flatlining.net, the articles there and such, is that you focused a lot on um, the economic side of healthcare and making a real good case for why we need to consider economics in healthcare. And I think that's something that a lot of people don't quite understand fully, or they're not interested in understanding it fully because economics can sometimes seem boring and dull. But as you've pointed out in a, in a couple of recent articles talking about drugs and, and, uh, uh, Medicare for all and other programs like that, that economics plays a major role in it. And to ignore it is to ignore what could be major flaws or major advantages in systems like that. So what do you think people need to take away from economics and healthcare, and, and why should they pay attention to that? Well, uh, first of all, I, I wish we didn't have to. I right. mean, I think it's, you know, everybody would love to live in a utopian society where, you know, we didn't have to worry about cost. I mean, we'd love for everybody to have housing and everybody to be extremely well fed and mm -hmm. everybody to have free health care. But unfortunately, that's not reality. And the reality is everything has to be paid for. And to the extent we pay for something, we do it at the exclusion of something else because there is only so much sort of money available. And so the main thing I want to explain to people is, this isn't something that I want to do. It's something that I, you know, say, oh, well, let's do this just because that's my degree. We're going to have to because the only thing we've proven over the last five or six decades is that we are very good at breaking the healthcare bank. We are on a trajectory that is unsustainable. And um, it's one of those things where uh, surgeons are very fond of the statement, all bleeding stops. And it right. does eventually. Yeah. And every pilot I know will say, oh, all planes land mm -hmm. eventually. <laughs> the trick is to make the bleeding stop before the patient dies. The trick is to land the plane safely. And from an economic perspective, if we don't figure out how to provide care, finance it, and do it within a reasonable means, oh, it's going to stop. We're just yeah. not going to like the way it happens. And COVID probably played a major role in that as well, at least yeah, exacerbating the problem. COVID did a number of things. I mean, it stressed out a number of things. It stressed out the health delivery system. It stressed out our economy. It stressed out the financing. And it will make some of these issues, now that we're coming out of the end of the bad part of COVID, come to light and, and in, with a whole lot more speed. Um, one of the things that I always look at from an economic perspective is our country's debt as a percentage of gross domestic product, debt to GDP. Mm -hmm. Reason I look at that is it's like, you know, it's just like saying, well, how much credit card does an individual have? Well, they can handle more credit card if they have a lot more income. Right. You know, the rich people can handle a lot of credit card. So right before COVID, our debt to GDP ratio was 108%, which is historically pretty high. Mm -hmm. So we owed 108% of what our annual gross domestic product is. In less than two years of COVID, it went from 108 to 133. That's never, we've never had yeah. debt to GDP there, ratio. So we maxed out the credit cards pretty good. At some point, we're going to have to pay for it. And you pointed out, and this this article went up uh, uh, just the day we were recording this, that that's, that's the entire economic output of Japan for the past, no, I'm sorry, this is the economic stimulus. The economic stimulus that we put in 
and this is how much money we spend on healthcare and healthcare related things in this country. The economic stimulus that we spent was the ent- equal to the entire output of Japan for the past two years. Yeah, you know, sometimes wrapping your head around big numbers, trillions, is hard to do. It's just hard to sort of right. get a sense of. So I like to put things from a comparison. So a couple of things that people understand is the the healthcare marketplace or the healthcare economy in this country. If it were its own country, okay, it would be the fourth largest country in the world. Okay, there's only three countries that spend that have bigger economies than what we spend on healthcare, and that's China, Japan, and us. And we're close to Japan. We would have a, a vote on the Security Council at the, the UN. I mean, <laughs> um, and then when you talk about how much money we had to flow into our economy in stimulus. This is deficit spending. We don't have this money. We borrowed it basically by printing or, or floating bonds. The amount of money we had to float in the economy, $5 trillion, is the size of an of the Japanese economy, entire economy for a full year. It's bigger than the German economy for a full year. So we borrowed Japan's economy to get us through the last two years. And that, that money is going to come due at some point. It's going to come due. I mean, I have heard arguments, too, that, you know, in some senses it was necessary only because the government itself mandated people shut down businesses. Now, I don't I did read, too, that the the second stimulus was probably or the third one under the Biden administration was probably not necessary. uh, And it probably jacked up the inflation rates. But I mean, either way, generally, I mean, generally, I'm of the belief that debt is not good in general. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and the idea that we would take out more debt to cover issues is, is problematic. Yeah, and there, I will tell you there's, there's um, like all things in economics, there's arguments on either side of things. I mean, you know, Harry Truman was fond of saying that he wanted to find a two-handed economist because everyone he ever talked to said, but on the other hand. Right. Um, <laughs> so the, the most common thought is that some amount of national debt is not bad, just like some amount of consumer debt is not bad. And that if you were truly completely debt-free, you're probably limiting the growth of your economy. Now, there's very few economists who think that 133% of GDP is, is not bad right. to some degree. Yeah. And, and there's general consensus that some amount and a pretty large amount of stimulus was needed to forego a full collapse of our economy. And you could argue whether it needed to be five trillion or two trillion, or but a significant amount of money needed to was needed to keep us sort of going. It's like infusing blood into a patient who's bleeding. You know, you, you got to do that to keep her from dying. Right. Um, but yeah, we're we're already seeing some of the early results of that. We're seeing high inflation rates right now. That's partly a result of having that much cash flow in the system. We're seeing a very difficult labor market because of the amount of cash that's flowing in the system. We're seeing some, you know, some supply chain issues and demand issues. Um, what we haven't seen yet, which will be the next shoe to drop, which is incredibly damaging, is increase in interest rates. Um, and all of this is going to then put pressure back on the healthcare system because, like I said before, Healthcare is usually the second largest expense for a lot of employers. Mm -hmm. It's the biggest chunk of the both federal, state, and local governments. And so to the extent that it's the big expense area, when economic times get difficult, there's going to be enormous pressure on healthcare to try to control that expense. And I think we can get really tempted, too, to to, – 
devolve into if only isms. And and you talked a little oh, yeah. bit about this a couple weeks ago, or rather last week. You know, if only we did this, this would solve our problems. And and I know that sometimes you sometimes hear educators say, if only we had more money, we would have better education. And mm-hmm. sometimes you hear the same thing with healthcare. And you talked about if only we, we went after the uh and this is switching gears a little bit from talking about the pandemic, but if only we mm-hmm. went after profits and of the insurance of big pharma companies, we would we would save our healthcare costs. And I think that that's something that's probably going to be brought up a, a couple times coming up into the midterms from people who either want to push Medicare for all or they want to push some form of price control or some sort of extremely high tax uh, that they're going to start saying, if only we cut the profits of big pharma of, you know, Merck, Biogen, et cetera, that we're going to lower the costs for everyone in this country. And you seem to disagree with that. Well, there's two problems um, in in that. One is there isn't a silver bullet. There isn't one thing you're going to do to fix healthcare and healthcare costs and coverage and all that. It it just, it doesn't exist. Um, If it did, we would have done it by now. Um, So this, if only we would just you could stop right there and I, I can I could stop somebody and say, you're wrong because right. there isn't the magic bullet. There isn't one thing. This is an incredibly complex problem that's going to require a number of actions to fix it. The second is usually the back half of that sentence, if only we would just, is not backed with any sort of data or understanding of the reality of it. So you say, well, if only, if only we would just you know, eliminate all the profit of the big pharma companies, then we would be just fine. No, we wouldn't. You add up all the profits of the big pharma companies, it doesn't even scratch the surface of what we need to do to healthcare cost. Um, if only we just got rid of the insurance company's profit. No, nope, there's enough money there either. If only we would just go to Medicare for all everything. No, nope, no, nope, that doesn't work either. And then it ignores the unintended side effects, you know, if only we got all the profit out of the big pharma companies. Okay, well, let's say we did that. And let's say it was enough money, which it's not. Why would they start developing drugs? Why would they take the risk? And there is a lot of expense to go down a rabbit hole that might produce nothing. You know, guess what? If there was no profit in oil, nobody would be tapping wells anymore either. Right. You know, if there was no profit in, in a lot of businesses, nobody would spend the money you take up front because the only reason you do it is to get the return. Now, I'm more than happy to have an argument about whether the profits of big pharma should be somehow regulated or controlled and what the side effects of that are, but that if only we just doesn't work. And it, it unfortunately adds system noise to what really needs to be a bigger discussion. And to that point about um, drug companies not wanting to invest in new drugs, that's been their... Uh their uh, argument against having Medicare negotiate drug rates. Uh, and I, that's something that we heard from President Biden a couple weeks ago in his State of the Union address. He wanted Medicare to start negotiating drug rates, uh, to quote him, just like the Veterans Affairs does. But the drug companies claim that if you give us rates too low, we're just not going to develop new drugs anymore because we won't have money for research. Yeah, I, I think the the. I mean, I'm not. I'm not saying you necessarily agree or have or have to agree. No, no I, I, first of all, I think you know Biden's comments about it. You know, we need to negotiate um, drug rates that'll that'll help um, miss the big point and um, the the sort of the big opportunity. Just like you know, a lot of the other attacks, whether it's on, on you know drug companies or insurance companies or doctors or hospitals or whatever. 
Um, and the point that I think it misses is in a free market economy, which is what we have in a capitalistic free market economy site, you get the performance that the market or the game sets up. Okay. Take a different, you know, the reason why computers, laptops or personal computers have gotten so much better and so much cheaper than when they first came out because the market bait drove it. Because if you build a better product, you will sell that product, you know, and, and that's what free markets do. That's the advantage of them. The problem that we have when you look at just pharma, for example, is their incentive is to make a better drug clinically. And they've done incredible things with that. We've had amazing improvements. Mm -hmm. But they've got no financial incentive to make a cheaper drug, a drug that maybe is almost as good but half the price. That's what we need to fix. Once we create an incentive that if a drug company knew, for example, hey, if my new multiple sclerosis drug can care for 95% of the patients with MS, just as well as the drugs that are in the market right now, but I can do that drug for half the price and I know I'll gain huge market share, they would do it, they'd do it tomorrow. But right now what they do is they know that if they make a drug that's just 5% better clinically, they can charge twice as much for it and it will be used. So are we surprised we're getting clinically better drugs at three times the price? No, that's exactly what the game's designed up to do. Well then change the game, that's the key. And it kind of puts us in this catch-22 that, you know, the, if the drugs are supposed to be helping people, then the more people that take it, in theory, if it's going to cure you, then you're not going to need the drug anymore. Well, yeah, well, I guess you're, the, the common thing is there cure versus... Right, cure versus know, treat. That, that's yeah, that's treat. the difference. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and, and don't get me wrong, you know, I used MS. If I had MS, I would want the best drug to help me treat my disease as long Absolutely. as I could. That, that's value. But... Again, the problem is we're making gains in clinical efficacy at massive increases in cost because that's what it's designed to do. An example might be, too, is, is the problem of insulin. And uh, President Biden mentioned this a few weeks ago in his State of the Union as well, that he wants to cap insulin at $35. And there seems to be some bipartisan support for this, just given the amount of Americans that do need insulin for diabetes. Do you think capping specific drugs or price controlling specific drugs helps solve the issue of, of high costs? Um, in a macro sense, no. Uh, you know, even if you look at insulin, and, and the problem with, and I'm not saying necessarily we shouldn't look at insulin and figure out because there are a lot of people who need it, but even if you look at insulin, by itself, it's not a huge portion of the overall healthcare spend or even of pharma. The problem becomes it's a very easy thing for people to understand and that anecdotal experience of, well, you know, Mary can't get her insulin because it went up to X. And, and we should care about that. But from a macro perspective, it doesn't begin to make a dent. Staying with drugs, you talked before about um, Aduhelm, Aduhelm, and mm -hmm. can, we have that linked at flatlining.net and it'll be in the show notes as well. And that's an example, I think, of where you could talk about trying to create more of a market for a drug, and we can talk more about whether or not the um, the drug should have been approved at, at a different time or, or later in this program, if you want. But the the drug dropped from sixty thousand a year to about thirty thousand a year per patient. Sorry, I have a truck driving away. It's okay. The drug dropped from about sixty thousand a year per patient to thirty thousand a year per patient. 
And, of course, it seemed to try and get more people to take it, I would assume, even though it has limited benefit. And that's, I suppose, an example of a market driving the price of something rather than putting a cap on it. A little bit. Um, It's at least a reflection that the manufacturers understand the, you know, the sticker shock of some of the price of these drugs. Um, but it, it still doesn't get at the core issue. I mean, the issue with that drug is the, you know, and again, we can debate whether it ever should have been approved, but mm-hmm. even with approval, the manufacturer knows that the benefits of that drug at best are limited. Um, and it, that it, it you know, it, it's approved, but really clinically, this is not a, a no-brainer kind of drug as far as it's it's and so because of that they're like oh how about if we have a fire sale half off sale now we'll use it and what they were really sort of trying to find is well do the doctors feel like it doesn't have clinical benefit that's why they're not prescribing it because it's 60 a year or maybe if we cut it in half someone will start using it right so it's a recognition that they understand price has some component to do with it but i mean let's put it this way if that drug was clinically very good. Let's say it, it doesn't cure Alzheimer's, but it significantly slows it down. Well, it wouldn't have been sixty thousand. It'd have been one hundred sixty thousand. Right. You know, so they would have gone the other way. Um, and that's one of the you know the big issues we have. And I suspect that with the argument about whether or not Medicare should cover a drug like Aduhelm, that Medicare likely, I would assume, they cover most drugs. Yeah, so in this, I'm glad you asked. This kind of gets on the crux of the well, sort of what do you do? So, you know, Medicare, if it's approved, it gets covered, okay, because Medicare doesn't want to be in the role of saying which patient should get a drug and which shouldn't, or whether it should be available or which or that shouldn't. And I understand that. And physicians don't want to be in that role, you know, so they want to say, hey, if it's good for my patient, I just prescribe. I don't care about how it is to pay for it. And what we need is a, to figure out a way that when a drug is getting approval clinically, that there's a second sort of level of approval, which is when and how will it be used, and that that's an economic approval. You know, I tell people that, you know, hey, what if there was a drug that came out that would cure MS? It'd be great, wouldn't it? But what if the drug manufacturer said it's a billion dollars for each one? You know, and I know that's a ridiculous number, but it points right. out the fact that Regardless of, of the drug's clinical effectiveness, we have to start looking at the price tag and saying, can we afford that drug? Because spending that money is going to divert money and resources from other things that may have more clinical benefit. Um, and that second level of proof, we need to figure out a way to do that so that a drug comes in and says, okay, it's clinically effective. But at that price, we're only going to approve it for people who meet this criteria, this condition, and vice versa. If a new drug comes out that's almost as good or, or as good but only for some of the people, that becomes the new first-line drug. No, you use that first because it's the same as this other drug for your condition, but it's a lot less expensive. That would create that economic marketplace where drug manufacturers would want to, to lower the cost of their drug or, or develop cheaper drugs to gain that market share. And this may be an example, too, probably one of a few examples where it may seem that Medicare for All-like systems are right, because the, the example you just gave, there's a perfect example of that is Trakafta for cystic fibrosis. 
which mm-hmm. was approved fairly quickly in the United States and then in Europe, but it took almost two years longer in Australia for, get, for it to get approved, and it's in part because they understood that they've got to weigh the cost of that. Yeah, and it gets into that, you know, the balance of um, when when people sort of look at our country and say, oh, my God, we you know, we're, we're so terrible because so many of these people can't afford health care and so many – well, yeah, that that's the negative side effect of having the best and the most available and the highest quality healthcare delivery system in the world. Right. What we have is high quality, incredible access, the the it, it, most advances in technology, drugs, et cetera. And the side effect of that is we have people that don't have coverage or are undercovered. Other countries have full coverage, but they don't have access to the things we have access to. So it's sort of a pick your poison. You know, yes, right. those countries are right that they got to do the economic actions of it. We would, we're, we're trying to have our cake and eat it too. We want the best and the cheapest, and that's just not possible. And I don't even know if it's necessarily one hundred percent desired. I mean, because in theory, if you if you've got to cut costs, you've got to cut them from somewhere. Right, right. The trick is how do you cut them in a way that allows you to provide, you know, the most coverage and care to as many as people as possible. And maintain as much of that quality as we currently have, the best of the quality. That you know, how do you you find that nice balance point? I don't know that there's anybody would disagree with the concept of everybody in America. We want them to have access to healthcare, just like we want everybody in America to have a job and a house and food. I mean, it's a mm-hmm. noble concept. Right. But how do we do that without killing the rest of it, um, the quality? Because that's a very real concern. If we went to a you know, a Medicare for all, we could swing back too far the other way. And I suppose part of that is, is a political problem of, of people on both sides refusing to at least try and meet in the middle and have a discussion. It turns into mudslinging and saying, well, they only want Medicare for all, so we're just not going to talk to them. Yeah. We, or expanding we, the Affordable Care Act or whatever their policy might be. We, we have lost the ability to have, and we need to get it back somehow, to have you know, not just discussion, but debate. Debate's fine. You know, I mean, you know, I I have a lot of thoughts and ideas. I don't for one instant think that all of them are right and that I'm the only proprietor of good ideas. Um, but we've got to figure out how to turn it away from, you know, we, they, on both sides, and into a, hey, I'll listen to your idea, you listen to mine, let's figure out where, you know, what the best of both of them are. Staying with talking about money and economics for just a second, but switching gears slightly, I want to talk a little bit more about in, uh, some of the insurance companies because this is this is kind of what we do at Fulcrum Strategies is, is we we work with a lot of them to represent to help doctors out and help them get paid more fairly in front of the insurance companies. And an instance where that may not be happening, we wrote about this a couple of weeks ago, is United's healthcare. Excuse me, United Healthcare's plan to rank radiology labs, and this might be an instance of where, when you're trying to cut costs, you're also cutting corners. Do you mind talking a little bit about that story? Yeah, yeah, sure. So, um, United Healthcare, and, and first of all, United Healthcare is a for-profit, publicly traded entity. Okay, like every publicly traded entity, their goal is to maximize their shareholders' investment. Period. That's okay. Um, And in doing that, they do what's good for their shareholders. Now, one of the things they're doing right now is they're saying that they're going to go through and they're going to rank imaging centers 
where you get your MRI, your CT, et cetera. And then based on that ranking, they're going to tie people's benefits to it. So somebody has a $50 copay for an MRI, it's $50 if they go to this center, and it's $100 if they go to this more expensive center. And the way they're doing that ranking is they're saying, well, first we're going to check quality because we want to make sure there's at least enough quality there. And then if quality is equal, then we're going to determine based on price. And that sounds great, except when you get sort of underneath it, you realize that their definition of quality is if you can clear three hurdles. And I won't, you know, the, a lot of people won't understand sort of the details of this, but basically the hurdles they're asking you to clear are very, very easy and everybody's going to clear it. It's sort of like if a college entrance criteria was, you know, can you fog a mirror? Right. Can you spell yeah. your name? Yeah. Okay, you're in. You passed our criteria. You're a smart kid. Um, and so they've created this fallacy of quality, and then they're going to purely do it on price. Now, what most consumers don't understand is that quality stuff really is important, when it, especially when it gets to imaging and most other specialties. For example, um, if you've got something going on and your neurologist is trying to diagnose it and they're, you know, they're concerned about something, you're going for a brain MRI, boy, the machine that you're on, the upgrade of the software that they're using to, read, to take those pictures, the technician skill, and absolutely the level of training for the, the radiologist that's reading it, those are all important things, mm -hmm. okay? But none of those things will really play into the quality scrub that United is using. And so you could come through this and end up going to the wrong imaging center because you think it's quality, getting your MRI read, and if they miss something, you could be fatal. You know, so if they miss an embolism or if they miss it, you know, um, it can be fatal. And so that's one of the big concerns about, you know, I understand why they're doing it. It's help, it's good for their profit. It's good for their shareholders. But for the individual patient, it could be bad. And the consumers don't fully understand that. You mentioned they're for-profit companies. Cigna is another one of these big for-profit companies. And one of the people we've been following on, on their own substack is Wendell Potter. And he pointed out that, you know, Wall Street punished Cigna not too long ago uh, when they said that 2022 is probably not going to be a big year for growth for them. And how does that also correlate with sort of what United's doing in trying to make sure they're getting as, you know, they're raising their profits for their shareholders as much as possible? Well, and that's one of the things that, you know, every industry has to be careful of in the, you know, in this kind of environment, in a capitalist environment. You know, for-profit companies have to continue to make profit, and Wall Street wants them to make bigger and bigger profits. And their executives have a lot of stock tied up in that, so it's, they're personally invested to it. Now, a lot of that turns into very positive things. It's why you know, Apple's products keep getting better. It's why, you know, we're seeing the advances in electric automobiles, et cetera, because you do better things, better goods or services for your customers, you win. So for the most part, that profit drive and continue, that drive to make you continue to improve ends up with a good product, meaning that the only way that you can continue to improve is to continue to provide either a better good or service for your customers. That's great, and we've seen the advantage of that. The problems in healthcare is for insurance companies, there's a bit of a disjointedness there because their end customer, the people with the insurance, the patient, really aren't the people who pay the bill. 
And so they can do what's right for the, their stock price and improve their profits. And if it's harmful to their customer, the patients, that might not necessarily reflect in them losing market share because it's not harmful to the employer who's paying the bill. So it's a really bizarre sort of economic structure. And so, yeah, if you look at the last two years of the pandemic, you know, the average of the big for-profit insurance companies, their stock price over two years went up by like 60 some percent. I think for United Healthcare, it's like 96% increase. And that's great and Wall Street's happy, but they also want it to continue and get even bigger. And it puts enormous pressure on these companies to find profits, more profits. And sometimes that pressure results in what is bad for patients or physicians or hospitals. Um, and that's what is a bit concerning. That enormous growth that some of these companies had during the pandemic, I think a lot of people wonder what caused that. So what did cause that? Yeah, so um, health insurance is probably one of the only industries where the pandemic was a financial, or health insurance was one of the only industries where the, the pandemic was a financial boon. And it has to do with when you think about how their business model works. In the simplest forms, a health insurance company collects premiums. That's their revenue. And then they have to pay out claims for health expenses. And what's left over is theirs. That's just a very simple business model. Well, the first part of the pandemic, remember, was when all elective procedures and everything shut down. So you weren't getting elective procedures. You weren't getting your screening mammogram. You weren't getting, right. you know, all these things weren't happening because the hospitals are just dealing with COVID. Well, that means they were collecting all their revenue, but not any expense. So they made huge profit from that. And then the other thing that happened, and this is going to sound a bit morbid, and I, 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 don't, I don't mean it to be, I'm not at all unsensitive to the fact that a million people lost their lives in this country from COVID. Mm -hmm. Just purely looking at it from an actuarial economic perspective. We know and we've known for a long time that 5% of our population, about 5% of the people, consume 50% of all the healthcare expenses. Right. Okay. And the bottom 50% of the people consume almost nothing. So we've got this scenario where a, a small part of our people chew up most of the expense and a lot of people don't spend hardly anything. Well, that 5% of the people were the people hit most hardest by COVID because they are the ones that have the underlying conditions, diabetes, mm -hmm. obesity, COPD, et cetera. That's who the people who died for the most part. So from an insurance company perspective, and I know this part that seems morbid, I apologize, but is that was also very good for them because they got rid of all the sick people. And so now they're going to keep, you know, roughly 95% of their revenue but lose a huge chunk of that 50% of their expense. In terms of insurance speak, they call it their book, is their book of business or their groups. Their book just got a lot cleaner, meaning right. a lot healthier. Right. And so that's gonna help them going forward. So yeah, it was one of the few industries that if anything, and I know they didn't want it and they, they aren't happy about it, but pandemic was a good thing for them financially. Did publicly traded hospital chains see the same amount of growth? Well, no. And hospitals were in a different scenario because they lost a lot of that revenue from all that elective stuff when things were down. Right. And that now that things have come back and somebody said, well, yeah, but they had all those COVID people in their hospital. Yes. That didn't offset the revenue they lost from not being able to do outpatient surgeries, et cetera. 
And now the reason why the hospital chains aren't seeing that same bump is they're seeing massive increases in labor cost and supply cost. Right, right. Yeah, and see, and that brings that brings up an interesting point about the difference between the actual in, the insurance economy side of the healthcare problem and the actual healthcare delivery side of the healthcare problem. They're two different things, and I don't think a lot of people fully understand that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, insurance is just financing healthcare. They don't provide any healthcare. You know, they pay for it. It's, it's. I tell people, think about. It's like the difference between your bank who holds your mortgage and the guy who built your house. Right. You know, one of them actually did the thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and the other one, and not that the other one isn't an important part. I mean, I no. wouldn't have a house without the bank, but they are very different markets, very different scenarios. So bringing to that point, because the insurance side and the delivery side are so different and we deal, we represent, for lack of a better term, the delivery side of the equation, why is it important that that side is more represented than it currently is? Um, I think for a long time, the delivery of healthcare and, and mostly more on the physician delivery than the hospital delivery, but to some degree on the hospital delivery has been incredibly focused on what they do, the delivery of care, and not focused on telling their story, and not focused on the, for lack of a better term, the marketing or the public relations, which is really explaining to your consumer your value. And they just haven't done that. They, they haven't mm -hmm. focused on it because they've been so hyper-focused on improving the delivery and quality of care, which is good. I'm glad they focused on that. But And because of that, we've created this, and they've been sort of outplayed by the insurance companies who do a very good job of public relations. And because of that, we've created this environment of a bit of a fallacy of, of you know, who's at fault and what the problems are. I mean, I hear people say all the time, um, well, you know, doctors, I mean, their, their incomes just keep going up and up and up. And right, right. That's the problem. Well, no, that, that, that's absolutely not true. If you look at average physician income adjusted for annual inflation, they haven't been getting any raises. You know, they've been basically holding their own. So it's just, but it's this fallacy that gets created. You know, well, they all make too much money. Actually, if you look at it economically, becoming a doctor is a pretty lousy personal economic decision. Right. You know, your, <laughs> your earnings period is pretty short. You start with a huge amount of debt. I yep. mean, you could pick almost any other white collar profession and over your lifespan do better. Um, and that's why I think, you know, they need to be better represented because the consumer needs to understand not that there aren't problems in any part of it, but this is what they do, this is who they are, and this is what, if we do too much damage, what we're going to end up getting. In, in a lot of markets you see uh, or hear television or radio advertising for hospital delivery systems, is that the answer or is that just kind of overkill? Um, and, not, I, and I'm not talking per, about we now offer this sort of service. It's more of yeah. look how great we are as a hospital compared to the other hospitals that might be in the area. Yeah, so I, I think there's there's going to be part of that. Um, to be honest, I think that the, the better thing is using other avenues of getting the message out. I mean, obviously, you know, everything from social media, right, right. Um, et cetera. But I, my, I would also like to see the, you know, the – if the media themselves, whether it's news or opinion folks or whatever, do a better job of digging deeper into that story and, and educating the, the, the public and the consumer about it. Um, I mean, I'm lucky that I, I, I deal with doctors on a one-to-one -one basis every day. 
I work in this, so I know their story. I know some of what they go through. And it just, that's why it's so frustrating me when I hear somebody say something flippant, like, well, those damn doctors always make too much money and they never work. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, a real quick, I, I, and I mean, this is an anecdotal thing, but this is what I mean by that. Um, in the middle of the pandemic, in the early part of the pandemic, before we had a vaccine, so remember all these people that are working in hospitals are doing it their own personal health detriment because they're at risk um, because we don't have a vaccine yet. I was talking to a doctor, an anesthesiologist, and now he's not making any paycheck right now because he really can't do any anesthesia for surgeries. They aren't doing any surgeries. So right. he's an independent doctor. He's not take, making any money, but he's working at the hospital doing intubations. So he's dealing mm-hmm. with the COVID patients. And I was talking to him and he said, you know, yeah, I'm doing um, 10 days on, 10 days off. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, for 10 days, I sleep at the hospital. I work the floor and then I get 10 days off. And I said, well, at least you get to go home. He said, no, I can't go home. I said, why? He goes, well, I don't know if I'm COVID positive. I'm not taking that to my family. Right. So I go to a hotel for 10 days. And then it struck me. He has a newborn. And I said, didn't you just have a baby? He said, yeah, I haven't held it yet. Because he couldn't risk giving it to his, and 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 I'm looking at that story and looking at that physician and going, he's putting himself at risk. He hasn't held his new child, and he's not making any money. And somebody's going to tell me that the problem is doctors make too much money and don't work. That's that's what I mean by it gets frustrating. We need to do a better job of people fully understanding what the healthcare delivery system is and how hard some of these people work, and that they've got their warts, but they aren't the root of this problem. And I mean, to to be fair, I think at the beginning of the pandemic, we we saw a lot better representation of oh. that sort of thing in the in the media. We did, and we and we saw. I mean, one of the, if there are a few positive things to the pandemic, I was really very pleasantly pleased by the consumers or the the public that you know the folks in New York City that were applauding as the as the nurses were leaving their shift, or you know this idea that you know that these people are heroes because they are. You know, are there are there bad apples in every bunch? Sure, but. I'd love to see us get to a place where much like a lot of the population will walk up to somebody who they know is, has or is or has been in the service and say, thank you for your service. I'd love to see us get to a point where we do that when we see somebody in scrubs. So okay. we're talking about um, the problems with misrepresenting doctors' motives in the media, in the public sphere. And I can't think – I think COVID-19 – a little bit in the 2016 election, but definitely in COVID-19, we saw a huge amount of misinformation, disinformation published on social media. And I know someone's probably going to write and say that we're just media hacks and, you know, okay, fine. But there was a lot of misinformation in the media. I don't think anyone can. I mean, look at the nonsense we see about vaccines and even about COVID itself. Mm-hmm. Yes. I think uh, a couple weeks ago I, I saw, I came across an instance of where this was probably best represented. And I think that the the interesting contrast here is that there's this assumption among people who either think COVID is made up or they think the vaccines are made up, that somehow the doctors are behind this big plot and the healthcare system in this country is behind this big plot to harm people in some way, which I don't quite understand because it seems to me that you're really not liking your doctor until they have to save your life or something. But this seems to be the case. And I wanted to share with you, Ron, and I haven't told you what the story is before, mm-hmm. but I wanted to share with you and get your reaction. And it's in, in our show notes, I wrote this week in dumb. 
even though it technically it took place last week. And I wanted to ask, start by asking, do you remember the Pizzagate incident from uh, the early early to mid-2010s? Oh, yeah. Yes, I do. This was, this was the man who was a subscriber to certain far-right conspiracy theories on the internet who had read about a pizza parlor in Virginia that was somehow a child sex trafficking ring being run by the Democrats and in particular the Clintons. And he took his, he took his rifle and drove to Virginia to go rescue the children from this pizza parlor. And he walked into the pizza parlor with a gun asking, demanding to, you know, know where the children were so that he could save them. And obviously there were no children there. This is that level of dumb, but it's COVID related. Okay. So in early 2020, um, a man named Jesse McFadden, and he's he's an older man, he's 71, called uh, 911 in his area, and this is in the uh, Thumb area of Michigan. This is in Bay County, Michigan. He called 911 saying he was going to go to his local hospital. He was going to shoot out the power at the hospital and demand keys to a fleet of ambulances so that he could rescue the COVID, pa- COVID patients being treated there. He then also said he was going to go to a Coast Guard station and steal a helicopter so he could fly them away to safety. I mean, this is this is dumb. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, just when you think yeah. you've heard it all, um, you know, unfortunately, and this is really sad. Um, I got to say, it doesn't really surprise me right now. Um, yeah, is it dumb? It's dumb on an epic level. Um, yeah. I can tell you from talking to doctors who work the COVID floors and hearing them talk about their nurses just mentally exhausted at the end of a day and some of their stories. I mean, I, I, I talked to one ER doctor who had pulled a shift. I had a call with him about it, you know, his group. And I said, you sound tired. And he said, I am. And I said, I know it's got to be hard. There's a lot of patients. He goes, no, I'm tired of signing death certificates. And it hit me that he's working his rear end off. His nurses are working their rear end off. And no matter what they do, there's still a fair amount of time. These patients don't make it. And he's the one who's there. And he's the one that, that signs the death certificate. And the nurse is the one there that's holding the iPad so that at least the family can have some virtual presence because they can't be in the room. And I think that that's the first thing that sort of hit my mind. And then I think, and here's some guy who's going to take a rifle and shoot up the power to save these patients. You know, the people inside are doing their damnedest to save them and, and failing for through no fault of their own. And this guy's going to do this. Where where does this come from? You know, where where does somebody get so off the track to where they think that the only way to save a patient with COVID is to get them out of a hospital that's doing their damnness to do just that and save them. Um, you know, it, 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 it just, it's right up there with the folks who are drinking their own urine and, um, but that's Ivermectin a, that's a too. new one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, at least Ivermectin's a drug though. Yeah, and, and there was, you know, the the now the using the vet strength version of right. ivermectin. And that's, that's what, right that's what I'm referring to is, is yeah. the horse. Yeah, the one you yeah. can go and buy without a prescription. Yeah, injecting yourself with horse any horse medication or swallowing any horse medication has got a, a special set of circumstances to it. But 
Well, and I'll, I'll tell you another story, and, I, and this is a true story from a client. Um, but it, it'll it gets to this level of of misinformation and and lack of understanding. Um, I have another ER group, and there's a treatment for COVID called ECMO, um, and it's you know it's sort of most people know what dialysis is. That's sort of cleansing the blood outside the body. And you put it back mm-hmm. in. Well, ECMO is a similar thing, only it's oxygenating the blood. So you take some blood outside. You put oxygen in it, put it back in, so it helps your lungs not to have to do that purpose. Well, like dialysis, in order to do it, you've got to add some additional blood because you're going to have a lot of it outside the body. So while it's doing that, you 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 get external you know blood. Right. Extremely effective. The problem is there's only so many ECMO machines in each hospital, so mm-hmm. they can't do it for everybody. So my client was telling me about he had a bad day, and he, he said, you know, I just don't get it. And he had two patients. Both of them were critical and needed ECMO, but they only had one machine. And so he's, first of all, he's got to make the decision who gets it. So talk about a, a rough thing to mm-hmm. have to do because you're deciding Absolutely. who's going to live and who's going to die. And so he made the decision based on clinical, which one he thought would have the best chance of recovery, et cetera, non-personal, and went in to tell the patient that was circling the drain that you're going to get ECMO and, and this is more than likely going to save your life. And the individual asked him if the blood that was going to be used was vaccinated. And he said, he tried to explain to him, look, I don't know. First of all, there's no way of knowing. And second of all, it doesn't matter because the MRNA vaccine leaves the system in like 72 hours. So, you know, even if they had been previously vaccinated, the vaccine isn't in that blood. Right. It's not tainted forever. And the individual said, if you can't guarantee me that's unvaccinated blood, I don't want it. And refused the ECMO. And so the other patient got it, and the patient that refused it died. And he said, I just don't get it. You know, they they had a, a way for me to save their life, and they chose not to do it because of misinformation. Because for somewhere deep in their brain, somebody had told them the vaccine is dangerous. It probably told them it changes their DNA, which it Mm -hmm. does not. Right. Um, And it cost them their life. And so, yeah, you know, this is what, you know, it's one thing to, you know, to be on social media and espousing, you know, conspiracy theories. And, hey, if it's fun for you, whatever. But it's killing people. Right, and luckily, I hope this guy wasn't successful in taking a rifle and shooting anybody. No, and I um, and I, I can conclude that story for you. He he did yeah. end up getting arrested. He showed up at the Coast Guard facility where he was arrested, and and the conclusion of the story was that he pled. Well, there were federal charges against him which were dropped in 2020, uh, but he did plead no contest in part. So basically, it, he it was it's a weird thing where he is not admitting to committing the crime, but also not admitting to not ki- mm-hmm. committing the crime. But it saves him from being sued for yeah. doing it, and it looks like he's he's going to have a fine and and possibly two years in prison. But it, it's one of those weird things where we have the situation where someone has gone on the internet, has spouted some nonsense, and people mm-hmm. have bought into it. It's the same thing. When, quite frankly, when Trump lost the election, people went on the internet, spouted some nonsense, and people, quite frankly, Trump spouted some nonsense too, if I'm going to be so bold. But that's what gets some of these things going, and people are angry, and they get riled up. And here in Michigan, they probably really didn't like the uh, restrictions that we had, but that's not an excuse to, you know, throw all reality out the window. Yeah, it's, it's, 
I'm perfectly fine with anybody saying I disagree with this policy or that policy. I think there's right. a legitimate debate to be had for things like personal liberties versus government restrictions. Those are all fair games. But it's when you take it too far to where you're going to take action um, and based on some really interesting sort of stuff, that's where we've gotten to. And that's sort of you know, really crazy. I, You know, uh, on a personal note, I... When the whole drinking your own urine thing was hitting, and I just thought, oh, my God, you know, now we're really into it. As a joke, you know, to sort of have this sort of funny scenario, I personally posted on Facebook, hey, I really hope somewhere there's two guys that were sitting around drinking a beer, and one of them said to the other one, I bet you 20 bucks I can start an Internet rumor that will make people drink their own urine. <laughs> and the other guy said, you're on, and the first guy said, hold, hold my beer. Yeah. So I, I made this scenario to sort of point out just how ridiculous this is and how it could have started from two guys making a bet for 20 bucks. So I put it out there thinking, hopefully some people will find humor in this. And honest to God, I got a response within 10 minutes. No, this is real. You drink your own urine, you'll get cured. I was like, oh my <laughs> God. Even when I'm trying to make fun of something that is ridiculous, people will try to, and they were, the person was seriously trying to convince me, uh-uh. It's true. I did the research. And, you know, the, like, inter really. the interesting thing about that type of convincing, because we talked earlier about, you know, we've gotten away from the point where we can actually debate each other. Right. The, the whole idea with this convincing thing, and granted there are people who are pro-vaccine that are the same way, but I have never heard people so militantly demanding that I have my rights that are also so militantly opposed to other people choosing to get a vaccine. Mm-hmm. And yeah. to me, it's strange, and it's it's exactly like what you're talking about, too. It's at the point where you can't make a joke without someone jumping in right. and saying, you know, how dare you contradict the one article I found on Google that says I can do this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, well, and it's just not even being willing to open up the, the slightest possibility that what you believe or what have been told or what you've read is wrong. Right, exactly. And, and that includes the slightest possibility that what you thought yesterday based on all the information you had yesterday turns out today to be wrong because we have new information, mm -hmm. you know, you know, not that we want to get down the rabbit hole, but you know, when people talk about, well, you know, on this date they said masks this, well, you know what, maybe on that date, that's what we thought based on the information. At one point early on clinically, we thought that intubating a patient was the right thing to do at a certain point, And we learned that it wasn't. Right. That it was better to rotate, you know, to flip the patient. And the intubation should be avoided at all costs. You know, at one point we thought the virus was X and then later we, so even evolution of thought isn't allowed. It's here's what I have. Mm -hmm. Here's what I know. I believe it. And don't confuse me with facts, logic, or reason because they have no place in my mind right now. Well, and this might be a good note to end on, but I, I did share this in my Friday Pulse check a couple of weeks ago that there was an article that came out in The Guardian not too long ago that was looking, that interviewed one of the doctors at Johns Hopkins University, one of the doctor professors there. And he was point, and he'd been pointing out and keeping track of how many people contradict his COVID reporting on his Twitter. And he noticed that once the war in Ukraine got started, that all of a sudden he didn't have people contradicting him anymore. And mm -hmm. what they've noticed is that the new misinformation has gone to Ukraine. You know, now it's U.S. secret bioweapons labs in Ukraine, which mm -hmm. there's no evidence for. And no, the Undersecretary of State didn't say anything about that in Congress. All she said was they have research labs. 
Mm-hmm. Didn't say anything about funding, didn't say anything about bioweapons. But it's interesting to see that now that the it seems that one, COVID seems to be coming, well, as you put it today, it's the beginning or it's the end of the beginning. Mm-hmm. We've moved on to the next thing, which is the war in Ukraine, and eventually we'll move on to the next thing. Just like 2016, we don't really talk about it anymore. We don't really talk about the Trump, the 2020 election anymore. Mm-hmm. We've all kind of moved on to our next thing. And in some sense, at least with regards to COVID, we're not talking about unhealthy things anymore. And in that sense, maybe that's good. Yeah, yeah, I, I completely agree. And 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 amazingly enough, the millions of people who apparently used to be experts in virology and immunology and infectious disease are now experts in foreign affairs and military affairs. Oh, yes, and, yeah, so, absolutely. Uh, they've moved on to the newer, <laughs> the new thing du jour. And so, I think you're. It's a good point. You're right. At least they're not doing things that are unhealthy and, right. and causing us problems. Well, Ron, thanks so much for joining us on this first one of the uh, Flatlining Podcast, and I uh, hope we get to do a lot more. Me as well. Thank you. The Flatlining Podcast is a production of Flatlining.net and Fulcrum Strategies, copyright 2022, all rights reserved. Be sure to subscribe to Flatlining on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. For Ron Howergan, I'm Matthew Handley. Have a great week. Have a great week.